Miracy. Hello, and welcome to Course Lab, the show that teaches creators like you how to make better online courses. I'm Danny Eaming, founder and CEO of Miracy. And I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder of Rizikit. In most episodes of Course Lab, we showcase a course and creator who's doing something really interesting, either with the architecture of their course or the business model behind it, or both. But today, you know, in lieu of our usual guest interview, Danny and I are going to be discussing AI, artificial intelligence, and the remarkable impact that this technology could potentially have. And probably will have, although there is going to be a, a fair amount of, I would imagine, speculation. You know, the challenge of a conversation like this is it's a little bit like talking about the pandemic, like, you know, a week and a half after it started. <laughs> a lot of the commentary didn't age particularly well, <laughs> but we'll, we'll do our best to share our perspective on where things are and where we can probably expect them to go. So should we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. So I guess let's start at the foundation layer, because a lot of people listening may be coming into this topic for the first time. Like, what are we talking about? Like, what is the kind of the basics of AI technology? What is ChatGPT, for example? And, and why are people so excited about it? Why is everybody talking about these products and this technology when it, it feels like they were hardly even on people's radar, you know, six months or a year ago? Well, I mean, you know, you've seen Terminator, right? So it's like if instead of wanting to be a soldier assassin, you know, it wanted to be a journalist. No, I'm not. <laughs> that's, that's not what it is. So, and we should preface this, I think, by saying that while we probably know more about this than most, neither of us are AI professionals. And so take everything we say with a little grain of salt. And, and that probably applies to a lot of what you are hearing out there about AI and about the impact on business. There is a lot of commentary from people who call themselves AI experts because they've been playing with these tools for a few months. And, you know, part of what we do on this show is we talk about teaching, we talk about real expertise. There's no such thing as an expert on something that's been out for 60 days or 90 days. That's just not how expertise works. So there are real AI experts in the world. Most of them are not talking about internet marketing, but just with that as a qualifier. So I think what's interesting at the most basic level, you've got what is called a large language model. So it's, you know, fed a ton of data, which is most of the internet. GPT 3.5 was most of the internet up to 2021. GPT 4 kind of brings it more or less more up to date. And what it does with that large language model is basically look, for, it's a prediction engine. And so it's looking at statistically what is the next right word and what is the next right word and what is the next right word up to the end of the answer. but it's not actually understanding your question. It's not understanding your answer that is giving you. There, there's no sentience there. It is just a statistical prediction engine. And so that's one big piece of it. And the second piece of it is the natural language interface. You don't have to give it pre-scripted programming commands or push buttons. You just talk to it. Proverbial, usually you type, but you, you just communicate in natural language and it, in air quotes, understands. It doesn't actually understand. But the natural language commands can trigger the large language, large language model prediction engine. Abe, is that a fair description from your perspective? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, to me, it seems like what the release of ChatGPT showed is that the way in which you afford interaction with these models really makes a huge difference, right? The, the GPT family of models have been available for a while, and, and there have been uh, products 
built on them, including very accessible, you know, copywriting products, for example, like Jasper that you can go in and, and create copy with. But it was a very small niche thing compared to Chat GPT, which it's been reported has over 100 million users in just a few months. And it, so it, it seems like the natural interaction of being able to have a back and forth exchange with a chatbot, even though like we know that there is no understanding happening, right? <laughs> the chatbot has no concept or, or reasoning power. Nevertheless, the conversation can often feel surprisingly natural and it can give you meaningful answers to a lot of different types of, of questions, which is a pretty fascinating you know, kind of development. The distinction of a statistical prediction engine versus actually understanding, it's hard for people to get their head around. So <laughs> it's very important though. So I want to try to explain it another way. When you ask it a question, it is not looking for the right answer. It is looking for what would the right answer sound like? And so a good example of this is that, you know, I went in there, I was like, write a bio of Danny Eaney. So he gave me back a bio that's half a page long, and it's formatted in the way you would expect a bio to be. And it would say the sort of things that you would expect a bio to say. But some of them were right, and some of them were wrong, right? So Danny Eaney began his career and blah, 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 and he's been here. Actually, let me see if I can pull it up, because I think it's instructive. It's also worth noting while you're pulling it up, too, that the bio will be different each time if you generate it multiple times. Correct. It's, it's stochastic. <laughs> so that's also, I think, a good way for people to get a handle on what's happening here is you can go ask ChatGBT to write your own bio or to you know, write some other summary like that and see how it changes when you do it multiple times. Yeah. So here's the bio that it gave me. And of course, I could say, make this more brief and it would make it more brief. I could give it instructions to tweak the delivery and it would never come out exactly the same because <laughs> it's kind of guessing at the right answer rather than knowing. Danny Eaney is an entrepreneur, author, and speaker who has established himself as a leading voice in the world of online education and marketing. Thank you very much, ChatGPT. He was born in Israel in 1980 and grew up in Montreal, Canada. Not quite. I was born in 1983. I was born in Montreal, grew up in Montreal, moved to Israel as a teenager, and then came back to Montreal when I was 21. So it is directionally correct, you could say, but the details are wrong. Eaney started his career in technology as a software developer and consultant working with clients such as Microsoft, Google, and IBM. So I kind of sort of wrote a little bit of software once upon a time. I was not a software developer, never worked with Microsoft, never worked with IBM. He later turned his attention to online education, founded his company Miracy in 2011, et cetera, et cetera, has authored several books. He got that part right, has been featured in numerous publications. Okay. In addition to running Miracy, Eni is a popular speaker who has delivered keynote speeches at conferences around the world. I mean... You know, maybe two or three of them, but not really. Uh, he's known for his engaging and informative presentations on topics such as entrepreneurship, marketing, and online education. Okay, I guess. Edie is also a dedicated philanthropist. Sounds good, but how do you quantify that? And serves on the board of several nonprofit organizations. Nope. <laughs> he currently lives in Montreal with his wife and three children. Nope, two of them. So this sounds like the right answer to what the answer should sound like to, you know, write a bio of Danny Eaney, but it's not actually correct. And unless you know me, unless you know my background, you don't know if the answer it's giving you is accurate. And that's, that's the really big problem. There's no 
confidence waiting. There's no, this is the stuff I'm sure about. This is the stuff where I'm just guessing, or as the programmers like to say, hallucinating. It's a weirdly anthropomorphizing description, right? You just don't know. And there's, there's a huge trustworthiness gap of what it gives you. So I guess given the power that we're seeing with these tools and how excited people are about them, but then also these um, challenges that they have, can you talk us through what are the opportunities or innovations here? And what are the problems or pitfalls that course creators need to watch out for? Yeah, so there's kind of a right way and a wrong way to use the technology. Um, the right way is to treat AI, ChatGPT, all these tools as an incredibly hardworking and moderately competent assistant, right? So someone who's got a, a lot of work ethic, a lot of elbow grease, will stay up till four in the morning doing what you ask them to. Um, but they're not possessing any real judgment or discretion or expertise in your subject area. So if you had someone like that, you would definitely give them tasks to do initial research and to draft up things that you could then edit and to synthesize stuff that you've already got is a really good tool for that. You would not trust that assistant to create publish-ready stuff. You would not trust that assistant's guidance or advice as anything more than a sounding board. So with that as a lens, it makes it clear what you could do with ChatGPT. You can use it to, and again, all these technologies kind of being lumped into one category, you can use it to save yourself a lot of time. Anything that you are fully capable and qualified to do on your own, you can probably get it done a lot faster and save yourself big chunks of time and effort by using AI to get a jump start because you're in a position to review what it's done, say, this is wrong, this is right, I'm going to change this, I'm going to send this back, do it again, right? That's another big advantage over a human moderately competent assistant. You can only tell a human so many times you got it wrong, try again. ChatGPT will never be offended. So you can keep sending it back until you're happy with what you've got. That's the right way to use it. The wrong way to use it is to expect it to bring expertise to the table that you don't have. So it can't write ebooks, it can't put together research reports, it can't produce any kind of content that you don't already have the expertise to do. Now, that being said, the big kind of asterisk to all that and the biggest impact is not going to be for course creators using it the right way. It's going to be because of course creators using it the wrong way. Because there's a truism in marketing, I think this is quoting Gary Vaynerchuk, that marketers ruin everything. <laughs> there is always going to be a tragedy of the commons where we would all be better off if everyone did it the right way. But there are always going to be some bad actors who want to make a buck by exploiting a loophole. We're already seeing the market kind of start being flooded by, I don't know if I would say really bad, but like really mediocre content. And because it can be produced really cheaply, it can be sold very cheaply. So you're, you're going to see kind of a race to the bottom in prices. And essentially the effect is that the value of information only courses is going to zero and it's happening pretty fast. And, you know, you could say that changes everything. You could also say it changes nothing because the trajectory we've been on for, for a long time, this has accelerated things a lot. So making money selling information that does not deliver substantial transformation, information that doesn't come with coaching or support or any of those things that actually drive a result. It's just that the rug is being pulled out from under that business model. But conversely, people have always and will always want real transformation. And the advent of all these AI technologies doesn't change the fundamental substrate on which learning happens, because until we get to the matrix where you can plug into a computer and just upload knowledge, learning doesn't happen in the computer. It happens in the brain behind the eyes that are in front of the computer. And 
that brain works the same way as it always had. And so, you know, learning experiences are still always going to be structured in a, you know, first they consume the information, then they apply the information, then they get feedback to improve their application and really internalize what they've learned. And a learning journey that delivers that transformation is what always has and always will justify a premium. And that will continue to be the case, you know, even more so as it is differentiated from, from the stuff where the value is going to zero. <laughs> I mean, that all makes sense. And like the other side of that, I guess, is people's interaction with their students or participants. Like part of the conversation we've been hearing on the higher education side of the fence is like, what does this mean when like any student can just generate a response to a typical you know, essay assignment, right? Or a typical, you know, take home um, exam question. Like ChatGPT, it's, it's been shown, could just answer those questions, right? In, in typical classes, like an MBA class or a sociology class. And that's, it's forcing people in universities to rethink, like, what does that mean, right? What type of assignments should we even be giving people? And, and how do we evaluate um, students' work in an era where, like, just showing that you can generate some text doesn't necessarily mean that much anymore. So the type of courses that people creating on Coursera are different, right? They're, they're, they're not typically for a degree. Um, people are not being forced to take our classes. They're taking them because they want to. What is, how does like AI though, or, or some of these tools potentially change the way that we interact with and support our students? So I mean, there's a lot in that question. On the higher ed side, I mean, honestly, I think this is some long overdue disruption and, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see it happening. You know, essay writing was never the thing that people were trying to test for. It was a proxy. It was, I want to see what you know. And the best way I've thought of that's relatively easy and puts most of the work on you rather than on me is for you to write an essay explaining it and I'll read it. And I guess that'll give me a, a rough sense. Right, but it's not very different from people being like, oh, you know, the advent of calculators. Oh, the advent mm -hmm. of computers. It messes everything up. Yeah. Here's the thing. Writing is a very complex skill. It's a compound skill. You have mm -hmm. to be good with the language. You have to be good with structuring a whole bunch of ideas one after the other. You have to be good at argumentation. You have to be good at rhetoric to a certain extent. And so if someone can write well and produce a good paper, you know that they check all those boxes. But on the other hand, they could be good at all but one of those boxes and their paper might still suck. <laughs> and so it's not the most, let's call it precise, <laughs> diagnostic <laughs> instrument. <laughs> and so forcing teachers to get more creative about separating those things out, um, I think is really valuable, right? Having people yeah. be given opportunities to make log logical argumentation, to present a case, to engage in discussion. The grading gets harder. You have to be more creative. But I think I think this is going to be a net positive for that context. Yeah. If people are trying to think about like, okay, how do I actually like integrate some of these approaches into the work that I'm doing? Like, what are some of the ideas that you're exploring there? Well, so here's, here's a great example. Um, you know, step 001 of creating any successful product, including a course, is figuring out what the market wants. You have to find the kind of people you want to serve. You've got to connect with them. You've got to talk to them. You've got to interview them. You've got to get information from them and you've got to parse all that information. And each of those is a discrete skill to be able to do it well. Now, some of them are important, right? The ability to have an engaging conversation with someone who will eventually become your student and customer 
let's say that you connect with the right person, you have the conversation, you ask them good questions, and then you do that times 50. So you've got 50 calls, 50 transcripts, 50 sets of notes. Now you've got to parse it for, okay, what, what are the patterns? What are the trends? And doing this with any level of rigor requires some statistical analysis and converting things into a spreadsheet and doing all these things that are really lateral to any other part of the course creation journey. And yet, if you don't do it well, then you know, you're not going to have good, reliable insights about what the course is you should even produce. Mm-hmm. An example where AI is very good at taking a lot of information that you give it and pulling out the patterns and the trends and what are the most important things people care about and what are the language patterns people use and so on and so forth. So what this will allow us to do is kind of separate out what are the key parts of the development and teaching journey that really have to stay with the expert? Mm-hmm. What are the parts where you kind of unfairly in some ways have to develop these completely lateral skill sets just to get there? So what this will hopefully do, um, we'll see how much this plays out in practice as opposed to just in theory, but is hopefully it will peel off a lot of those areas where like, it's really a shame that people ever had to learn this thing that is unrelated to their core competence just in order to deliver their core competence. So using AI to, you're saying to, for example, accelerate your customer or market research for a course or product you want to create or to make sense of inputs or data that you have, for example. As a for example, but there are probably cases like that all along the journey. <laughs> and you want to make sure, I, I mean, I saw this funny comic the other day where it's like, you know, AI on both ends of the process. So you see one guy telling his boss, look, I can take this one sentence and have AI turn it into a whole email that I've sent to someone. And on the other end, you've got someone saying, look, I can use AI to take this whole email and boil it down to one sentence for me to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There will be a rush to like, you know, over AI everything. And the market is very hot right now. Like, you know, any business where it's like, you know, I'm doing fill in the blank plus AI or with AI, you know, valuations are inflated. There is a lot of that. But what we fundamentally want to look at is what are the things where if we analogize this to industrial or manufacturing type contexts, right? What are the things where it's a core competence that only you can do? And what are the things where you know, if we could automate this, it would save so much time and so much energy and allow us to focus more on what we do best. Maybe we can try to give people some, you know, homework or action steps here to try and get more comfortable with the coming AI wave. What are some practical things that people you know, could do to get their feet wet in this area to get started? Well, I mean, the easiest thing is, is always the first step, which is just you've got to get in there and start using the tools. And, you know, it could be ChatGPT, it could be their API playground, it could be the bar tool, the Bing AI, you know, choose your tool and maybe choose more than one, just start playing with them. You know, the big advantage and the reason these tools have been adopted so quickly is that when they work on technology, we already have, you don't need to buy a new device. And there's no learning curve because the input is natural language, (laughs) right? So you just say what you want and see what it gives back to you and pretend it is a person in front of you who will not be offended. And if you don't get back what you want, refine your instructions. A big skill in using these tools effectively is prompt engineering. So giving the tools a prompt that will elicit the kind of response that is useful. And so rules of thumb, the more detailed and precise your instructions are for what you want, what to include, what not to include, what tone, what style you're looking for, what role the AI should be playing. So, you know, you are a market researcher, you are a customer fitting this profile, you are 
whatever the role is, you are a marketing director who's advising me, right? Fill in the blank. <laughs> so what is the role? What is the what are the parameters for the output that you're looking for? The more precise you are, the better the results are you're going to get. Now, it's still not an expert, right? It's it's still feeding off of all the information on the internet. And some of that's good information, some of it's bad. So garbage in, garbage out. So you still have to know how to evaluate the results. But especially if you're giving it the data set, or if you're in a position to say, this is useful, this is not, it can save you an enormous amount of time. The other piece of it too, in experimenting and just getting comfortable with what these tools can do is I think it helps to, you know, people call them generative AI tools because I think that's where some of the confusions you mentioned earlier around factual accuracy come in is that they're not reasoning, they're not analyzing, and they're not, um, they have no model for accuracy. They are generating. So a, a good way to get comfortable with that is ask, you know, look at, at prompting to generate um, ideas rather than to create something that, that has a factual component, like your bio example, um, or to do something more analytical. So for example, you know, things I've tried are, you know, write seven um, subject lines for an email about this topic, or, you know, what are, um, can you come up with, you know, five ideas or angles for a webinar that focuses on this idea? And it can be a pretty quick and fun way to expand the repertoire of ideas um, that you would come up with on your own. And because it's generative, there there is no concern about accuracy, right? Like the subject line isn't right or wrong. It's just, is it to your taste or not? Um, so it's, it's a great way to like leverage the power of these tools without, you know, the accuracy concerns. Anything else I uh, think people should try or do or any other thoughts you want to leave people with? So whenever you adopt I mean, not even a new technology, but, you know, whenever you try something new, whenever you try to integrate something new into your life, <laughs> you go through this process where you start at this place of uninformed optimism, right? Oh my God, AI is going to change everything about everything I do. It's going to be amazing. It's going to save me so much time. Then you go to a place of informed pessimism. It's like, oh, the results are not so good and there are mistakes in this. And, you know, it's not as easy as I thought. Early reports are showing that, like, most people are more impressed with it the first time than the second time. But then if you push through, you get to a place of informed optimism where it's not so magically easy and it's not just pushing a button and everything does it for you. Um, but it can actually save you a lot of time if you push through that, what's called the trough of despair, to get to a place where you've developed some actual competence and ability. And this is not optional in the sense that it's just being adopted so widely and this is the way that technology is moving so clearly that it will be a common thing in the world, in the industry, in the market soon. I don't know if that's a matter of months or years, but it's happening. And that's not avoidable. It's not something you can say, no, I just don't want it to. It's not like some technology platform or fad or social media. It's, it's not like that. Yeah. And so this is a change that's happening. And, you know, there's the old truism that if the rate of change outside your business is faster than the rate of change inside your business, then pretty soon you're out of business. So you can't really stick your head in the sand and just pretend this is not happening. Um, but the learning curve on this is very gentle, right? Again, natural language. You just say what you want, see what it gives you back, you refine your instructions. Um, so it's worth diving in and just starting to get comfortable. Yeah. You know, 10 minutes a week if, if that's all you want to do. And it's cool. You know, you can get guidance from people who have explored more deeply and, and that'll save you time. Yeah. I like it.
So this is the part where we would usually debrief, but a debrief of our own conversation would be weird. Is there anything you think we missed or any other topics we should address? Uh, well, the other thing, the only thing that comes to mind that we didn't really touch on is that, you know, as humans, we have a tendency of anthropomorphizing everything. Right? We say faces in clouds and clods of dirt on the floor and whatever. Right. <laughs> and so it's very hard not to anthropomorphize this. And because of that, I think it's important to be mindful of how you interact with the technology. I read somewhere that 70% of people interacting with these AIs, you know, say please and thank you. Um, and I do as well. And I don't do it because I think it's alive, but I do it because I don't want to get in the habit of interacting with those around me in a way that is callous. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit lateral to the rest of our conversation, but this is going to become more and more a part of how we interact with the world. And our brains are not wired to make these distinctions very clearly, right? It's like when you have very small children and they talk to Alexa or Siri <laughs> the way they would to another person, they don't quite get that it's not the same, <laughs> right? They, they get that it's different, but it's like they don't understand the distinction. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of that going on inside of all of us. And so just being mindful of how we want to be interacting with the world around us and how we want to be showing up, I think is important. And it's also going to like change customer expectations at the same time, right? As like people get used to being able to essentially ask for anything in natural language at any time, that becomes an expectation to deliver on it in, in many different areas that, that aren't really possible today, that, but that people will increasingly want in the future. So, all right, Abe, on to the readout. Yes. Thank you for listening to Course Lab. I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder and CEO of Rizigu, here with Danny Eni, founder and CEO of Mercy. Course Lab is part of the Mercy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as For Better or For Work and Behind the Launch. This episode of Course Lab was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eni is our executive producer, post-production by Post Office Sound. If you don't want to miss the excellent episodes coming up on Course Lab, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Are you enjoying our show? If you are, go ahead and leave us a starred review. It really does make a difference. Either way, thank you, and we'll see you next time. All right, are you ready? Wait, what's my cue? It's a behind the scenes kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. I'm Melinda Cohen and your host for this show. I also know that I'm listening when, again, my mind is relaxed. So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great frame. That's a, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I think so, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just you know, either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's, you know, the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is, ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so while I love what's on the other side, I think 
navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah, because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And I don't know if it's, you know, societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness. My desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness fully confident so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now. And over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. Why are you stopping the recording? This is going to be fun. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.